Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer and tonight we ask what happened to the house price crash? To answer that question we have Cameron Kusher who's the Executive Manager of Economic Research at the REA Group, the Chief Economist at BIS Oxford Economics and Dominic Cavanino, the Head of Research at Benari Property and we'll try and work out what happens to house prices in 2021. So without any further ado let's catch up with Cameron Kusher. One of the surprising aspects of this coronavirus crash is that house prices haven't crashed. One guy who'd have a pretty good perspective on that is Cameron Kusher, who's the Executive Manager of Economic Research for the REA Group. Cameron, great to see you. Thanks, Peter. Uh, look, you would remember, as I do, at the beginning of this, we had even banks suggesting a 30% house price fall uh, because of this uh, uh, coronavirus uh, and, the, and the whole close down, the lockdown that happened after it. Um, are you surprised how little house prices have fallen? Uh, not to sort of toot my own horn, but I guess uh, at REA we never thought that there was going to be a, a significant fall in, in, in prices in the housing market. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, we expected that there was going to be some sort of uh, housing market stimulus and, and home builder obviously came along uh, during the pandemic. And we know, we look back uh, through history, we look back through the GFC, we look back through other downturns. Housing market is one of the first areas that always receives stimulus because of the multiplier effect of that stimulus on the broader economy. But there were some other reasons as well. Uh, we felt that people were very much underestimating the impact of how low the cost of borrowing had fallen. So the cash rate being cut to 0.25%, you know, now maybe even being cut lower than that. You can get a three-year fixed rate mortgage from one of the big lenders for about 2.2, mm. 2.3%. Look at that from the perspective of someone that's renting and someone that, or, or someone that's going to take out a mortgage. For a lot of people now, uh, taking out a mortgage is actually going to be cheaper than the rent that they're paying. So that was always going to have an impact on the market. And then also just the fact that international borders were shut and people couldn't spend like they usually could spend. So whilst you know people that already owned a home might have budgeted for a, a family holiday to Europe each year or to the US, and you know that might have cost them twenty or thirty thousand dollars or or maybe more than that. They now couldn't do that. So they were going to look for other ways to spend that money. And we thought that a lot of that money would start to flow into the housing market. It certainly seems like that's what's been happening. Mm. One of the, um, well, a couple of the interesting developments that had helped keep house prices high and rising, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know you would if I am wrong, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not wrong, is. Um, <laughs> Immigration, really important, I, I would have thought. Um, the, the, the whole tourism and Airbnb effect on a, a part of real estate, um, and I guess foreign students as well, those three things I've always thought were fairly important to house prices, and they have been affected. I would have thought because of that, at least there would, be, would have been some kind of depression in prices. And we have seen some kind of depression in prices, but are they significant issues, those three items that I brought up? 
there are definitely challenges. And, and I think what we found is the impacts of the shut international borders has been very much localised. So if we look at inner city markets, uh, particularly apartment markets in Sydney and Melbourne, there's been very large falls in, um, in rental prices in those markets and big increases in the availability of properties uh, listed for rent. Uh, and we've also seen weakness in prices of, establish of established inner city units in markets like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, as well as areas around universities. Um, so it, it's definitely a challenge. I think Home Builder has, in some respects, shielded us from that challenge. Uh, 2021, if there's not further stimulus for the housing market, that could also have an impact, particularly on the new housing sector, because when most people migrate to Australia, they'll obviously not own their own home, they'll rent for a period of time. And in a lot of instances, well, students will rent near universities or in inner cities, but also uh, people that are maybe planning to move here long-term will tend to rent uh, in established areas. But then when they want to buy, if they're not yet a citizen of Australia, in most instances, they have to buy something brand new. So that means uh, an inner city apartment, or that means an outer fringe uh, new housing uh, property. So I think what we're, what we're seeing at the moment is that Home Builder is in some way um, protecting that new housing sector at the moment. Uh, of course, it does expire at the end of 2021. And if we, if we don't start to see migration returning to Australia, then that could start to become a bit more of an issue for the housing market uh, next. But again, I think it's going to be very localised into certain pockets uh, of the major capital cities. Okay. Let me ask you a hard question, but because you know everything about real estate, Cameron, nothing is hard for you. Um, the, the price points of, say, the one-bedroom apartments in Sydney and Melbourne that historically would have been very popular for Airbnb, foreign or interstate tourists, are the sale price points of those sorts of properties within the reach of first-home buyers and are first-home buyers interested in buying one-bedroom apartments, say, in the cities of Sydney and Melbourne? There's certainly a cohort of uh, first-home buyers that would be interested in that, but, but I think what we've seen from COVID is people are, are starting to value uh, having a bit more space. Mm. And what we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years is increasingly inner-city apartments have just been shrinking in size and shrinking in size. Uh, it's a bit of a difference between Sydney and Melbourne. So... For Sydney, a one-bedroom, brand-new, off-the-plan apartment's probably going to cost you seven fifty to eight hundred thousand dollars. So, obviously, that's that's quite expensive. Uh, or in Melbourne, you know, it's probably around four hundred, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So it's certainly within reach. But what we're finding at the moment is, uh, for most apartment dwellers, they don't actually have access to home builder, and the reason for that is. Um, some of the timing requirements for home builder basically means if you want to buy an apartment and be applicable for home builder, the project has to be kicking off within the next three to six months to, to be able to access that scheme. So home builder is being much more effective at the house and land and even just established vacant land in capital cities, we're seeing really strong increase in, in purchasing behaviour in, uh, in that market. So I think in terms of the, the smaller one and two bedroom apartment markets, I think they're going to be very challenged over the next few years because uh, that, that has been sort of investors' bread and butter. And, and we know at the moment uh, for investors, we're seeing rents fall in these areas, uh, migration's not there. Um, so I, I think that that is going to be a challenging market. I think developers are, are probably going to be looking to change 
they're offering in these new apartment buildings from uh, investor grade product to sort of more owner occupier product. And, mm. and, and I think that's going to result in a lot fewer new uh, dwelling commencements in the apartment space because a lot of these developers have paid top dollar for these sites and we're expecting to put, you know, four or five hundred thousand of four or five hundred, uh, you know, one and two bedroom investment grade units. And that's just not the type of product that's going to stack up in the current market. Mm. Are we starting to see um, investors looking at these um, um, apartments on the basis that the price has fallen so uh, significantly and therefore they're like, like you might buy a good stock when the, the market trashes it. Are we seeing a, a investors coming in and B are the banks making it easy for investors to buy property again? I mean, there's not a huge amount of evidence of investors returning. If you look at the housing finance data, they have crept a little bit higher over the last few months, but you know, for the first time since I think 2009, in terms of the value lent, first home buyers have been greater than, uh, than investors. Uh, but, but I think we will start to see that over the coming months, uh, particularly as you said, you know, borrowing has become a little bit easier, uh, especially if the government does go forward with these changes to the responsible lending laws. That will make it a little bit easier for people to access finance. The, the questions that they're asked won't be as intrusive as they were in the past. Um, but, but also, I think just the, the fact that the cost of borrowing is so low, if you can get a, a 4% rental yield on an on a investment property uh, in, a, in a building, that's actually starting to look pretty attractive yeah. when, you know, borrowing costs are the lowest they've ever been. The cash rate, you know, by next week might be 0.1%. Um, that does start to look attractive. So I do wonder if, especially if people start feeling like the equities market's looking a bit frothy, uh, if they do start to look back to residential property. Yeah, uh, talking to some real estate agents, there, there certainly looks to be a bit more interest from investors in places like the Golden Sunshine Coast and these kind of areas. Uh, but we're not hearing a lot of that in the capital cities just yet. But I think it'll be a trend to watch out for over the coming months. Would, would you have expected, say, around March or February of this year when the, the coronavirus crash was happening on the stock market and we were closing down the economy, would you have expected that Western Australia or Perth would have had a, a vacancy problem like they've got right now? I think rent's going through the roof again, aren't they? That, that they're certainly starting to climb pretty rapidly and I, I wouldn't have expected it. I guess it probably shows you just um, compared to the rest of the country how sort of independent Western Australia actually is. The, the shut borders don't seem to have uh, affected it too much. Obviously, commodity prices have, have certainly worked in Western Australia's favour uh, over the last little while as well. And, and I think the fact that we have had home builder, uh, we have had the Western Australian government offer additional stimulus uh, for, for first home buyers has really greatly assisted that market. And, and of course, that housing market has basically gone nowhere for the past decade. So, you know, People from WA love their holidays to Bali. They can't really do that at the moment. They can't plan a holiday to Europe. Um, so, you know, they, they probably, you know, there are a lot of people that migrate out of Western Australia, but maybe maybe what we've seen with coronavirus has encouraged them that, hey, I don't need to go and move over to Sydney or Melbourne for that job now. I can stay stay here and do that job. So it's not really, I mean, when you look at, looking back, obviously, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it, it kind of makes sense that we're seeing some strength in that Western Australian market. Mm. Uh, 
and the borders are shut and uh, and given what's happening with commodity prices and, and given the stimulus that has been put in place by both the federal and state government there. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm guessing this is right, Cameron, you, and once again, you can correct me, but I figure occasionally you get a lot of hate mail on Twitter when you you aren't you don't succumb to the doomsday merchants out there who have been predicting at least for five or six years when they terrorise me, the house, you know, the, the house prices just don't fall the way they want them to. Um, do you want to admit to being terrorised by that group? Oh, of course. That, that, I think that happens to anyone. And, and, you know, you do have to have a bit of a thick skin uh, about this stuff. Uh, look, there's property, I don't think anyone would argue that property prices aren't expensive in Australia. Um, they, they certainly are. Um, but you know, un you know, unfortunately for for people that want to sit back and wait for this crash to happen, I mean, one day it probably will happen. But I also think you know that the governments are going to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at mm. the residential property market because so much of Australian households' wealth is tied to the residential property market. And um, you know, for better or worse, it's kind of become too big to fail. If it were to crash, the impact it would have on the broader economy. Uh, would be, you know, pretty terrible. So yeah. no, no politician wants to sit back and watch that happen. So they'll do whatever they can to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, and I and I guess you've done some work on the the servicing of debt because they often will pull out the household debt to GDP ratio, but ultimately it gets down to the ability to service your debt. And, and until we get un unemployment going to say fifteen or twenty percent. With interest rates so low, our doomsday merchant buddies are going to have a long wait. I certainly would agree with that. I think that um, unless, and even historically, if you look back to the 1991 recession, the unemployment rate coming out of that in Sydney was about 10%. And property prices increased by 15% the year after the recession finished. Mm. Um, so it's not, you know, you'd probably need a spike in unemployment and it to remain at a high level for a, for a number of years. Mm. And I, as you say, the cost of borrowing is very low. What what would be something that could cause a crash in, in, the, uh, in the housing market was if interest rates were lifted very quickly. But again, I think that the likelihood of that happening is extremely low because, um, because we know that households have a lot of debt. Mm. Uh, and I think just the conditions at the moment, and again, this is not to say that they won't be here in the future, but I don't see the conditions at the moment uh, consistent with a, a property price crash. Yeah, and it's also fair to argue that when central banks really did muck up interest rates in the 80s when home loan interest rates went to 17%, in many ways central banks were just learning about monetary policy in a deregulated environment. And I, I think they've probably learned a few lessons over the, the past few decades. Uh, I, I think you're completely right. I mean, you remember interest rates in the late 80s were still being set by government, not by the Reserve Bank. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've only had an independent Reserve Bank for what, 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, there was still very early days there. And I think that's one of the other things. People are talking a lot about, okay, what happens when uh, the, the support from the banks is withdrawn from the market and they're taking a, a pretty pragmatic approach to these mortgage holidays at the moment. But again, it's very different to the 1991 recession. Interest rates then were about 18.5%. So if someone did fall into arrears, they needed to get those properties off their books very quickly. 
Uh, with the cash rate sitting at 0.25%, they can be a lot more pragmatic about helping people through financial hardship. And I mean, they can't continue to let people not pay their mortgage forever, uh, but there's not that urgency for lenders to get these properties off their books if they do fall into arrears. Yeah, great point. Cameron, thanks for joining us on the program and uh, I hope you're right. Thanks very much, Peter. Well, we've talked about what house prices have been doing. Let's try and guess what house prices might do in the future. And to help us, we've got the Chief Australian Economist of BIS Oxford Economics, Sarah Hunter. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Sarah, let's just talk about the budget first of all. Has the budget been a, a plus for house prices going forward? Well, there was obviously uh, very definitely some support for household income in particular in the budget with those uh, personal income tax cuts that were brought forward uh, around about you know, uh, sort of 18, 20 months. Um, there was also a little bit of support as well uh, in terms of those people on uh, social security benefits. Uh, so overall for household income, um, the budget was a positive relative to what was in place previously. Uh, and of course, that you know, can be a, is a pretty important driver in terms of house prices going forward. So at the very least, it certainly wasn't um, a negative uh, for house prices, um, you know, a, a little bit of extra support at the margin. But it was really, to be honest with you, in line with what we were expecting to see um, in yeah. terms of households. So no big surprises for us. Okay. No big surprises for us as of probably March 2020. But if I took, if I took you back a couple of years, would you ever imagine an Australian budget deficit of $213.7 billion? No, absolutely not. I mean, obviously, we're, we're facing a or going through a once in a century crisis, although at least you very much hope that it's, it's a at best or at worst that frequent we wouldn't want to experience this any more often than that mm. uh, so no of course not and uh, it's extraordinary times and and it is right that it's extraordinary measures to, mm. to the pandemic as well both in terms of the the public health response of course and that's uh, been very successful here when we compare to other countries around the world but also uh, the economic response as well that this is not the time to uh, to be worrying about hitting a, a balanced budget or to be concerned about the level of government borrowing. This is a time to really uh, be uh, pu putting a lot of stimulus into the economy, both from, from the uh, federal government, from the state governments and from the RBA, and they've all done that, of course, uh, to really you know, kickstart the recovery as the economy opens up and we're able to move uh, back towards a more normal way of, of living and working. As an economist, um, I know that you know, we, we always have to put value judgments in there and uh, put our best guess assumptions in there as well. But also, you know, part of your job is to, to crunch numbers and we've seen what the IMF expects for 2021 in terms of economic growth. We've seen what Treasury and the Reserve Bank uh, is guessing and it is, as you know, we call it forecasting, but uh, in times like this, it's more guessing. What's your best forecast? for 2021? <laughs> uh, well, it's certainly a lot of uh, uncertainty and volatility in forecasts at the moment. And, there, uh, you know, there is so much about how things are playing out that we, we don't have a historical precedent in terms of having numbers that we can mm. look at to give us an indication of, of what's happening. So it, it's certainly a, a challenging uh, job at the moment, producing forecasts. Um, in terms of what we see playing out, 
Uh, we're, I think for, for 2020 that the forecasts are really converging. We're obviously now in the last three months of the year, so we've got a lot of information about what's happening. And uh, we think that the decline in GDP will probably come in uh, probably a, a little bit under 4%, uh, but, but sort of around that ballpark. Um, in terms of the recovery through uh, 2021, uh, we're, we're more conservative uh, than the Treasury. Uh, we'll see where the RBA land in a few weeks with their uh, November update. Uh, we think growth next year, maybe something around two and a half percent. I think that the main thing about what happens next year with the economy, and this is all, of course, assuming that there's not another wave of cases that uh, we can open up and stay open, the state borders can be reopened. Uh, the international border, not immediately, obviously, but uh, the second half of next year, we would to obviously move to a point where that's possible too, with vaccine development, all of those sorts of things. But uh, assuming all of that uh, happens, the main thing for next year in terms of the uncertainty and that, and that will really will drive uh, what happens to the economy is how consumers respond to um, all of the different moves that are going to be flowing through their income position. So on the, the supporters side, you've obviously got the, the income tax cuts and so how much of that is spent and, and how much is saved by people. Uh, we've also got the shifts in, in terms of job keeper payments and uh, job seeker payments, all of those sorts of things which are winding back and, and how they play through in a net effect. You know, some of the job keeper recipients might well find for them that, that they don't actually change their take home pay because their business can afford to pay them uh, their wage and the, the keeper payment removement doesn't uh, really cause any problems. Equally, some people may well find uh, that their hours are cut or that they're uh, that they're actually they lose their jobs because the business can't afford to keep them on. So we, we, there's a lot of uncertainty around how households are going to respond, um, just in terms of their income profiles and their spending, and that's going to be a really key driver of demand next year. And that will spill over to business investment and, and other parts of the economy because you know the bedrock for uh, the GDP in normal times is normally very steady. Really, is consumer spending at the mm. moment? It's the big uncertainty, and that's what makes this cycle so unique. Yeah. Can, can you give me your, your your best forecast for calendar 2021? Uh, yeah, we so we think it's uh, around about 2.4% growth 2 .4. in the economy. Okay. And, and so is that because you think that consumption may well disappoint? Uh, because as you said, it's a really important driver mm -hmm. and there are lots of moving parts in 2021. Because, you know, we have seen numbers closer to four, haven't we, uh, out mm. there for 2021? Mm -hmm. So is Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of where the budget is landing as well. Mm. And the, the key uh, difference in terms of, of GDP growth next year and what's really going to drive it through is how people respond, particularly to those income tax cuts. Yeah. Um, and, and what happens in terms of household income as job keeper and job seeker are wound back and, and also that we get the winding down of the extra support payments for other uh, people receiving social security benefits because they've taken a substantial step down in the current quarter and, and will stay low in the March quarter and then they'll disappear yeah. uh, completely on current policy. Uh, for us, the caution is really if we look at what's happened in previous downturns, previous recessions both here and in other countries, what you do, what the typical response from consumers tends to be uh, they increase their savings rate to begin with. Um, that's been uh, sort of reinforced this time around by the restrictions on spending. So you've got a, a caution increase in, in saving and you've got the fact that many people we couldn't spend the way we would normally spend, particularly in the, the June quarter. So there's been a big spike up. The key question is how much and how quickly does that come back down? 
if we look um, historically, what you normally see is, and what we would expect to see this time as well, is a, a quite a big step down in that savings rate in the near term. And that's partially, you know, an unwinding of restrictions and we can all travel around the country a bit more and go and visit our family, friends, mm -hmm. go on a day at home. Then that, you know, uses up some income, of course, and so that will push that savings rate down. But having, even with that, what you typically see through downturns is that it takes a long time for the savings rate to get back to where it was. It remains elevated. If we look in the post-financial crisis years, for instance, similar pattern, less extreme, of course, but step up to begin with. And then it took the best part of a decade to get back to where it was. And that was just about where we'd got to uh, pre-COVID. Yeah. So that's, that's quite a long process. And, and that's where our caution comes from. Um, is if we see that kind of pattern repeated this time around, then consumer spending is going to be, um, you know, not, I mean, it doesn't have to be tepid by historical standards, but just in terms of uh, relative to the, to the decline, it is going to, to be somewhat disappointing. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that really for us is the concern, and that's what we're looking to see play out through the numbers next year. So the fact that your, your 2020 number was correct me if I'm wrong. Was it was it under four? You thought? Uh, yeah, around at minus three point yeah. seven, three point eight. Given that, was it, was that has that been helped by the fact that um, because we've been restricted to Australia, even within our respective states, and we've we've been given JobKeeper, and unemployment hasn't gone to ten percent so far, and we can't go overseas like all the yuppies do and spend $65 billion overseas. Instead, we're spending at Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi and Kogan or whatever. Has that uh, softened the contraction blow? And yeah. That, and that uh, might then be yes. reversed in the middle of next year or something? Yeah, well, so to, to answer the first part of that, yes, absolutely. There, there have definitely been some, some offsets to uh, to the sort of the initial shock, which have been very supportive. So. One thing that was uh, perhaps a bit surprising to observe when we got June quarter data, and, and it will be uh, maintained at, at least through the September quarter when we get that data, is household income actually increased. Mm. Uh, that sounds like a very strange thing to say uh, during such a big downturn in economic activity and, and uh, through the pandemic, but, but it is what happened. And, and essentially, uh, the additional government support payments that came through uh, to households were more than enough to offset the losses from lower income from labor so from the people who lost their jobs and lost their wages um, and also from the, the fall in income from other sources so interest payments uh, people with a rental property that might have had rent reduction uh, lower dividend payments all of that other sources of income the losses there were actually less than the increase in the government support payments and so that then is all other things equal very supportive for uh, consumer spending mm. um, and, and so that came through Yes, and also um, thinking about that, that uh, tourism piece, it's interesting, um, in normal times, Australians actually import many more tourism services than we export. So we travel abroad and spend more abroad doing so uh, than, than foreign visitors spend um, in country. And so by cutting both of those channels off, you know, obviously pretty much completely with the border restrictions, um, that has uh, been made uh, services exports are um, more supportive for GDP because we're, we've got less leakage, if you like, uh, mm. going out in terms of imports. So, uh, so yeah, that channel as well, um, as you as, as things unwind, as restrictions are eased, um, that will unwind itself. Um, you, you, know, you have to expect that people will want to travel abroad again and, 
uh, I mean, in my, myself personally, I'm obviously not from uh, Australia originally and very much looking forward to the day when I can go and see my family back home. Yeah, gee, uh, gee, so, I, I don't think anyone would have picked that you're not from Australia, Sarah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not. All right, so uh, I, I, I did uh, read something which I thought was quite brilliant, which I actually wrote, where I actually said that this is the craziest recession I've ever seen. And you basically implied the same thing. We're, we've even seen insolvencies at historic lows and, and we've seen you know, mm -hmm. consumption rise and all these sorts of things. Uh, I, and I guess that's my, my question to you, is that because this is the craziest recession of all time, how good are past recessions in giving us a reliable take on what might happen in 2021? Yeah, you obviously um, what we're seeing and experiencing does mean that, that certain parts of this are going to look different to, to previous recessions. That's absolutely true. And it's already the case. Yeah, as you said, they, uh, notwithstanding everything I just said, consumer spending was the thing that uh, fell the most in, uh, in the June quarter. So it was the, the biggest contributor to that negative. In normal recessions, it, that's not what we see at all. Consumer spending is normally the relatively steady component of, of demand and its business investment in particular um, and, and exports uh, that will swing more in imports as well. Uh, so, so that in and of itself was, was atypical. Um, and some of the other things you mentioned, like the insolvencies, I mean, that's obviously a product of the fact that the government effectively put a moratorium on those for six months. And so those are now uh, very low levels. But again, it's, it's artificial and a product of uh, the times that we live in now and the government response to what's happening. I think though, um, and, and that does mean the recovery will look different as well. Um, and it will be much more led by consumers, much more led by the service sectors that have been most impacted, of course, because they've got the most ground to make up. Um, I, I think that there are lessons that you can learn from, from previous downturns. I mean, we're, and we're already starting to see some of those more usual channels uh, feeding through. Uh, so, for instance, we are starting to see the impact on business investment that we would expect to see. The investment intentions are coming down. You know, if it's an uncertain environment, the borders closed, what's going on with migration, all of these things are challenging for businesses. And, and in that environment, you don't necessarily really want to be expanding capacity unless you're absolutely sure you've got the demand to, uh, to, to sort of warrant it. And so we're starting to see that feed through. We're starting to see some of the job losses in some of the sectors that are more connected with business to business rather than business to consumer. And again, that's a more typical response. Uh, and in terms of spending patterns and, and looking at um, how that's playing through, there's a lot of volatility uh, in that retail data and any of the data that we're seeing. But um, what we are um, starting to sort of get suggestions of is that there's been a recovery, absolutely, uh, at least partially, but the spending is kind of plateauing a bit. It's not really picking up anymore. And again, that's sort of and uh, sits within that, uh, what I was saying earlier on about the cautious household. I'm not too sure. And, uh, and, and so we're saving just a little bit more every month just to be, just to be safe effectively. And, and that's a, a typical response that we see. So I think we can learn lessons from previous recessions, but clearly the way this plays through is going to look different. And, and it is interesting to see how those, those differences evolve and how different sectors will feel those as well. I mean, even within consumer spending, going forward from here, it's uh, despite it being generally a recovery, we would think and hope some parts of retail are actually probably going to go backwards from where yeah. they are right at this moment, um, as other parts of the service economy come back online. So household goods, for instance, have had an absolute bonanza run 
uh, through the pandemic. We've all been stuck at home and working from home more and all of those sorts of things. And, and this has triggered many people to sort of make some improvements, DIY jobs, you know, office, all of that sort of stuff. We're starting to see that come off um, and that spending yeah. is being redirected elsewhere. So actually the outlook for say, uh, you know, some of the uh, big homeware stores is is probably not that positive in the near term because they've had their their burst and and, and spending is going to go elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, so putting it all together, uh, BIS is the property section of Oxford Economics, uh, and we we've, we've been surprised that property prices mm. haven't collapsed as as mm. much as some banking economists thought. I I didn't get a chance to. Um, put you on the spot uh, in, in the past few months because you've been too busy for me. But now I've got you. Let's go, let's go to your crystal ball. What do you think is going to happen to how, uh, property prices around the country going forward? Yeah, and, and, and full disclosure, I think we've been surprised as well at, at how well prices have held up. Um, and we did think that would be more of a, a downward pressure on them. So, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're certainly not outliers in that regard. Um, I think going forward, uh, we can sort of see there's, there's these sort of t competing tensions in the property market. And I suppose broadly speaking, um, there's, we see it overall coming a, as a downward trend, but a, a relatively soft one, particularly given the, the economic environment. And, and really what we can see is that some of those economic fundamentals are obviously really challenging and difficult, um, either you know, perhaps not so directly for the people who would be owner occupiers, because in terms of the makeup of, of the job losses and things like that, they've been very concentrated on sort of more lower paid casual jobs. And these are typically aren't people who would be owner occupiers, but indirectly thinking about investors and rental markets and that sort of thing, there's obviously a lot of negative pressure there that we, we think will um, come through. But having said all of that, there's a lot of monetary stimulus, a lot of monetary stimulus um, that's feeding through the system. And it, and some of it predates COVID. I think it's, you know, sort of hard to wind the clock back, but it's only just over a year ago when the RBA started their um, rate cutting cycle that was much more of a response to normal conditions and mm. you know, get the economy going. We also had the change in the interest rate buffer uh, rules from APRA that was sort of June, July last year. And so that was still what really was still working its right way through the system when COVID hit. So there's all that as well as everything that's happened since. So yeah, monetary support is absolutely definitely helping to offset a lot of the negatives. And it is really very strongly appearing in the mortgage market and now in the transactions. And, and that is a big support and a push against those, those price falls that would be coming through from the confidence, the broader economic environment and the impact on Hmm. for for some uh, for some people and, and some individuals right. so overall a bit more of a drift down uh, but not a dramatic decline um, across the cities we do think probably in line with most people that Sydney and Melbourne are particularly exposed um, just given their economic structures and they are particularly reliant on um, particularly the overseas students and the international migrants and so their demand has taken more of a hit than other cities um, and then the outperformers uh, looks like WA Perth um, is going to come through pretty strongly if you look at some of the forward indicators there. And that also lines up with their, both their experience of the pandemic, relatively mild, and the economy there is travelling really well through it. But also mining sector activity, we're starting to see a pickup um, there in that um, investment construction space, and that's drawing in workers, and, and that will provide a bit of support, fuel for the pro local property market. Yeah. Okay, well, one last question. Um, the, the suggestion that prices will drift kind of a, a gentle downward trend, particularly because of the stimulus. But, but what if, and I, I know you're used to me being excessively optimistic, Sarah, 
what if the vaccine comes through faster than we expect? What if, as a consequence, I think even the Treasurer has actually said he, he could pick up a $34 billion gain if a vaccine is, is around and being, are all being jabbed by the middle of the year. So if, if vaccine news actually surprises the most cautious economist at BIS, Oxford Economics, um, would that have a, a, a better impact on house prices? I think it would definitely have a better impact generally for the economy. Um, and so it would uh, just speed up the, the recovery process. And that then naturally spills through into uh, the housing market. I mean, obviously, there's um, the, so the way that would shake out in terms of policy as well and uh, economic policy, not just the public health side of things, uh, would obviously be something we'd be monitoring. But but there is, yeah, that that is the major upside right now. I suppose the um, the only caution I have in general, looking through the recovery and, and thinking about the, the health side and, and the economic side of it is um, we solving the health crisis is obviously absolutely paramount. We can't fully recover without that. And, and, and everyone has their fingers crossed for a vaccine at the end of this year or next year. And that, let's hope that that's where we end up. Uh, but just looking at the economic recovery and how that will play through it, a precondition of it occurring completely is the vaccine, but it's, uh, it's not the only thing that will have to happen. And uh, there is momentum and, and sort of decisions that are, are taken sequentially through the economy and, and they can't be instantly reversed. So, for instance, um, you know, we know that the airlines obviously very challenging conditions for them right now. And they've had to lay off or at least stand down for a long period of time. A lot of their workers. It's not going to be the case that even if we do roll out a vaccine, we're all vaccinated quicker than we expect that they can snap back to their previous capacity very quickly. It's going to take them some time. Um, and that then uh, is a very micro example, though, but just tells you that the recovery trajectory is not just a function of vaccine, that there's uh, more to it than that. It's going to take longer to rebuild, if you like, um, to, to get through and, and to fully recover. So a bit of caution. There is some upside risk, but it, it won't be a snapback V, even if we do get a vaccine earlier than anticipated. And I, I very much hope that we do. Sarah Hansen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. One of the big surprises of the property market is, despite a recession, we haven't seen a crash of house prices. A lot of experts were tipping it. Let's find out why with Dominic Cavanino, who's Head of Research and Acquisition at Benari Property. Thanks for coming to the program, mate. No worries. Thank you for having me. So um, let's go back to March, February, March this year. We fearful that there might have been a, a pretty substantial yeah. house price fall? Yeah. yeah, I guess, I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, mm. the, the situation of COVID and how quickly the outbreak started to happen around the country obviously led to a lot of fears around what that would mean for the property market. And it's, you know, it's typically a well-speculated, um, you know, industry and, and a well-speculated market, you know, predicting the falls and things. And, you know, a lot, was, a lot of what was being, you know, released by the media was around some pretty drastic, mm. drastic falls and some drastic numbers. But I guess, you know, We've always maintained the view that properties are a fairly stable asset, um, and you know it's there's not one market around the country. Mm. There's various, you know, many various markets around the country, and they all tend to perform differently. Um, and typically, in times where we do see these things change, or you know, we do have something, some external impacts to the market, you know, those markets tend to perform differently. So, you know, what we've seen is that the the markets that are you know typically dominated by owner occupiers um, and are much more tightly held have tend to to perform quite well. And you know, actually across all the capital city markets, we've pretty much seen 
you know, price increases over the last 12 months, you know, mm -hmm. apart from some small blips here and there based on how the COVID situation has been handled. But overall, we've been you know, pretty solid. So explain to us what Benari Property does. Yeah, so Benari Property <coughs> is basically a property investment research advisory. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, we work with many financial planners, mortgage brokers, um, and just your everyday Australians who are looking to build an investment port property portfolio. Mm -hmm. So the role of Benari Property is to take a lot of the stress out of that search and, and you know, help them to have comfort in that they're making the right decisions around property investment. Mm. Um, and essentially we monitor the markets around the country from a research perspective um, and help our clients to identify really strong properties within those markets that are going to help them to either build on an existing portfolio or begin an investment portfolio. Okay, so um, if you look at the reasons why we haven't crashed, what are the main ones? Yeah, well, I think the um, the obvious one is the low interest rate environment. You know, that's that's obviously assisted in people's affordability um, and it encourages spending. And even in these times where we have had, you know, very challenging employment conditions and things like that, I think the low interest rate environment gives people confidence and has, you know, we haven't had that a scenario where many people can't afford to hold their mortgages. And then we've also had, you know, the government stimulus. There's been lots of uh, the job keeper, the job seeker payments have been you know, really important to keeping people employed. Um, and then the you know, mortgage repayment holidays from banks, you know, it's, it's really you know, taken the, the e it's really eased that sort of strain on affordability, yeah. which might have led to a, a you know, large supply of houses brought onto the market. Do you survey properties right around the country? Yeah, so we, we tend to focus on the East Coast, mm. um, but we do monitor the markets around the country. Um, and our focus tends to be around the capital city markets and the major regional markets around yeah. them. So has the Melbourne lockdown um, made some of your expectations around price movements a little bit more challenging? Yeah, I mean, the Melbourne lockdown, what, one thing that it has done is sort of reduce the ease of transactions of property, you know. So there hasn't been any um, properties brought on the market. There hasn't really been any market properties that had been sold. So it's kind of just brought the market to a standstill. I think where we've seen the changes in the Melbourne market is in the rental, the rental side of things. You know, areas that have typically been very, very solid from a you know, vacancy perspective and a rental perspective have seen vacancy rates rise. And, and you know, that's as a result of not only the lockdown, people probably moving back home that were out of home renting in the sort of you know, trendy areas of Melbourne. Um, also, the freeze on sort of international travellers has had a massive impact. And also, the um, you know, people that traditionally have held Airbnb properties that have converted them to long-term rentals. There's just been a bit more rental supply on the market. So I think that's where the, the main impact has been. Mm. Um, but we found before the lockdown and even post the lockdown, we're still seeing you know, relatively strong results from a, a sale perspective. So I, I presume, as you pointed out, that uh, direct customers and financial advisors can come to you guys and say, where do you think there are some good buyers at the moment? Yeah. Where are there good buyers at the moment? Oh, I think there's, you know, again, there's there's markets within markets. So there are, you know, pockets of the Bris the southeast Queensland market that we think are really, really strong. You know, the Sunshine Coast, whilst the other areas in the around the country have seen vacancies rise generally, the Sunshine Coast has seen vacancy rates fall from 2.1%, which was relatively low, down to sort of 0.3% across a lot of those suburbs. So I think you can sort of start to see those markets you know, heating up a little bit. I think there's some great buyers in, in Brisbane, but it really depends on where you're looking. You've got to be focusing on areas with limited supply um, and areas where you aren't, you know, you aren't, you, you can't be buying a, a one bedroom apartment in a highly dense um, area where you've got lots and lots of supply to come. You've got to be buying in areas where 
you know, there's a real limitation on what's to come. Mm. We've found our clients to be really, really successful in um, some ta boutique townhouse projects um, or boutique townhouse developments that are within a sort of the middle ring of the CBD. Mm. Um, they're getting really strong rental results. You know, we looked at our last eight settlements, I think it was, eight, last eight client settlements. All, all bar one were rented before settlement occurred. Um, so, you know, just, and that was going through the COVID period. Yeah. So, I think so you're, you're primarily so, uh, looking after people who are property investors, or do you actually even get, you know, uh, home occupiers buying and yeah. asking for advice? As yeah, well? typic typically we get, um, we're, we're dealing with investors, mm -hmm. um, but we do have the odd client mm -hmm. who we've worked with from an investment perspective or our advisors, our relationships with advisors or brokers mm. that have clients looking to purchase a home, will generally provide just some, you know, some assistance and advice on what we think of, of certain areas. Mm. Um, most of the clients who we're working with though are investors. Okay. Yeah. So you, your focus in terms of looking for areas that have potential so far has sounded like South East Queensland and Brisbane. Uh, what about a place like Sydney? Are there suburbs that in a sense have become more popular because of the coronavirus? Uh, potentially, I mean, look, we don't focus too much on Sydney. Mm. A large part of the research that we do is on market cycles. Mm. And, you know, we saw from between 2011, 2012 to sort of 2017, 2018, Sydney did really, really well. And, um, you know, from a cycle perspective, if you're investing and you're trying to, you know, catch the, the opportunity phase of a cycle rather than getting at the top end, um, we've seen a lot of our clients over the last few years sort of invest in the, the markets outside of Sydney. There's probably, there's, there are areas in Sydney that have been more affected by the coronavirus um, pandemic and you know, a lot of them might have been traditionally ones that are really solid, which are the eastern suburbs where you had a lot of Airbnbs, again, tran yeah. you know, transferred into the yeah. long-term rental market. So supply there and then also the areas that are dominated by students, you know, those overseas students yeah. who aren't renting in Zetland and those sorts of areas anymore, they've been affected. Yeah. Um, but you know, typically what's held the market across all the cities is just very low supply. There has yeah. been not a lot of market properties brought to market. There's been a lot of developers have put properties or projects on hold. Mm. You know, there's been a real low supply environment. The demographer Bernard Salt said on my show that uh, a lot of people are thinking about going to the bush or to coastal regions. Are you seeing that kind of thing as well? Yeah, I think mm. the, um, the Sunshine Coast is a really good example, yeah. you know, because a lot of people are now have that flexibility of not having to work in the office um, five days a week and mm. you know we may see a, a more of a permanent shift towards those sort of type of work arrangements um, which means that people can go a couple of hours from the CBD um, and be happy to work from there rather than you know having to be so close to the city um, so it provides that lifestyle and affordability aspect in some cases as well as you know maintaining your employment. And so what do you think are the key traps for investors right now? The key traps are, are just in, in the type of property that you're looking at. You know, you want to be buying in areas with limited supply. We've always worked off the philosophy that supply and demand is basically key to how successful your investment is. You know, if you're in an area where you've got lots and lots of supply and no, no limitation on supply, um, then it, that typically dilutes any potential growth and, um, and it can affect you in these times where rental markets soften and things like that. So our biggest thing is to make sure that what you're looking at is a property that an owner-occupier would purchase, mm. um, even though it's as an investment, because you just want to avoid the types of properties that are only appealing to the investor market, yeah. um, and you want to be in those properties that appeal to the wider, the wider market. I, j I just interviewed uh, Chris Joy, who's um, pretty talented when it comes to um, predicting what's happening in the future, and he was pointing out 
So some number like 480,000 Australians have actually come home. Yeah. Now these yeah. people are going to be looking for either rental or purchase properties. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether um, apartments that were used for Airbnb could well become uh, attractive for yeah. either the investor who's looking for something cheap, yeah. like you do when the stock market falls, yeah. or for someone who's yeah, moved back home and yeah. are we seeing any of that trend at this point in time? Yeah, well I think the, the expats and the people returning from overseas has very much sort of balanced out that gap that we've lost from you know, your traditional mm. population growth. Um, so that's obviously been a key driver for holding up the markets as well. Um, and there's, yeah, there's no doubt they might occupy those properties that were once Airbnbs mm. or you know, were traditionally owned by investors who, who weren't renting them out on the long-term rental market kind of thing. But I mean, again, as an investor, capitalising on that demand from a rental perspective could be great in the short term. But you know, we always sort of pitch maintaining a long-term focus um, and ensuring that what you're buying, it, yes, it'll rent, but uh, most importantly, it'll have that demand and appeal when you go to sell it in 10, 15 years' time. Dominic, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. Thank you very much for having me.